hello everyone. Hello everyone. Good evening. Uh, it's good for me to be with you. My name is Ben. Um, let me pray as we start. Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift it is to us. We thank you for your constant provision for us as a church. And most of all, your provision of the truth that we can know you through Jesus and through the scriptures that point us to him. Please help us to see this this evening, and may you encourage us in your own way. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read chapter one shortly, so it'll be good for you to have it open in your Bible. Um, So page 1198, if you haven't already turned there. Um, It's a lovely little letter. Lovely is actually not the right word. It's a great letter. Uh, It's a very practical letter um, that Paul wrote If you don't know much about Paul, Paul's life was turned upside down when he met, encountered the risen Jesus on his way to Damascus. Everything changed for him from then on. And Jesus called him to take the good news to all the nations. That Jesus is Lord, he's alive, and he calls all people to follow him. And he grants forgiveness of sins, new life, and a kingdom Um, that will come shortly. So there's um, a lot of things going through Paul's mind as he's taking the gospel. And one of the things he has to work out is how how does the church organize itself? People are responding to the good news across the Greco-Roman world. And now they're, they're trying to organize themselves and think about how we should live. So this is a letter that is really practical for the church. A very practical letter, and I hope it will be practical for us as well. So let me read from chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put into order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, Faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. 
and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to mere human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You can see why lovely wasn't a great description earlier, isn't it? And some people call that a poem there in verse 12. Um, the, one of Crete's own po- poets, some please, people, translations have. It's not a lovely poem, is it? Not a very heartwarming one. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. We cringe a little bit when we hear Paul seem to paint a whole people with one brush, but this really was a reputation that Cretans had, to the extent that actually their name had been turned into a verb. To critizo in Greek was to lie, to be a liar. So they've not, not got a great reputation. What do you think someone would say about Cambridgeians? Would we be, would we fit that? I think that would be harsh. I think that would be harsh. I certainly don't think that. But what, what would someone say about Cambridgeians? I've been thinking about maybe a poem that might suit us. And I'm not sure this does. You can test it out. But um, one of the poems I love was from William Yeats. And he wrote this poem uh, shortly after World War I when people were just devastated about the destruction that was caused and largely because of stubborn men who wouldn't give up their agendas. This is what he wrote. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. The best lack all conviction. Cambridgeians, I would say, are doubters. Doubters. We don't, we're suspicious, I think, of people who claim to know the truth and to have conviction in the truth, to state it. Yes, you can have your truth. I'll have my truth. But if you start saying that you have the truth, ah, that makes us feel a little bit awkward, doesn't it? We like to hedge our bets. It seems to me like this would be, this could be true, but I don't know. Who am I to say that? You do what seems best to you. That's how we like to speak. And there's sometimes where it's really appropriate to 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 be someone who has nuance. But the problem is, Titus, this letter to Titus, what really stands out is that as believers in Jesus, we need to be convicted about the truth. We need to really believe it. It's important. Look at what he says in verse 1. The very aim of his apostleship is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. 
And this isn't just a head knowledge. This is a real deep in my bones. I believe this to be true. Jesus Christ is Lord. God has offered eternal life on the basis of faith in Jesus. The reason this is so important in the letter to Titus is that Paul is convinced that if we don't have the truth and don't believe it, we will not do what is good. Doing good, I think, is actually the main theme of this letter. That's why I've, I've called the series What the Church Needs to Do Good. And it's really striking. I've, to my count, at least nine times in the letter, Paul urges them to do what is good. And one of the most striking ones is in verse 13 of chapter 2. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Let me just give you a little bit of a, a, a run through the book. Verse 13 of chapter 2 uh, Paul says, sorry, actually, it's not verse 13. Um, Holy Grace. It's verse 14. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What's the purpose? of Jesus Christ giving himself for us so that he would have a people who are eager to do what is good. He repeats it again and again. And I love the way he finishes the letter. Having said it at least, at least nine, eight times by now, verse 12, he starts to give some just practical greetings at the end of the letter. As soon as I send Artemis, this is verse 12 of chapter 3, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything that they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not to live unproductive lives. So he could have finished the letter there. Just saying, and don't forget this, Titus. Urge the people. Let them learn to do good. And one thing I just want to ask us at Eden Church, this is a genuine question, I don't know, I'm fairly, I came here in September, so I don't think I could answer this. Are we a church who are eager to do good? If someone just watched us over a period of time, would they go away and say, you know, one thing I could say about Eden, they do a lot of good. I don't know, genuine question. Something for us to think about. But what I want to focus on today is that for Paul, we must have a conviction of the truth if that's going to be us. So how do we get there? Maybe you have experienced a lot of doubt in your life and maybe you find that Cambridge, the air that we breathe in Cambridge makes that worse for you. What can we find in this letter to help us to grow in that conviction? According to Paul, the first thing Titus needs to put in place at Crete is leaders. Leaders. So that's what we're going to look at. The first thing today is we're going to look at what kind of leaders do we need? And then why do we need them? What kind of leaders do we need? That's verse 1 all the way to verse 9. And then why we need them from verse 10 to verse 16. So the first thing, what kind of leaders do we need? We need leaders who are authorized by God. 
The whole point of this introduction, as Paul kind of weaves his own calling into God's offer of eternal life, is for Paul to say that his ministry is not something he just came up with. It was given to him by God. He was entrusted, it says, that he was appointed in verse, um, entrusted with the gospel by the command of God our Savior. This is the second half of verse 3. In his preaching, God has made known the message of eternal life. He's someone who's under the command, under the command of God our Savior. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he's an ascent one, a servant of God. So as, we, as he moves on, we just need to recognize, as he goes to describe leaders, it's not something for us to kind of pick and choose from. This is an authoritative job description that we are given here in verse 5. So I'm just going to take us through this quickly. And I think it's especially relevant for us as we're looking for a new pastor. We already know these passages well and the elders have been thinking about it a lot, I'm sure, as they are appointing a new pastor. But it's good for us as a congregation just to go through again what is God's job description for the new pastor we are seeking and for the elders and leaders that we currently have. So let's start from verse uh, 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Verse 6. An elder must be blameless. An elder must be blameless. That's a pretty high bar to start with, isn't it? Blameless, though, we should understand, as is often the case in the scriptures, blameless doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean spotless. But it's the, it's the kind of person who you'd look at their life and you'd say, well, yeah, I know they're a sinner. I know they have their struggles, but I've got nothing against them. The way they carry out their lives, there's nothing I could put blame on them for this or for that. They're blameless. Faithful to his wife. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. One of the first places we can assess the character of a leader is in their home life. How do they lead in the home? It doesn't mean, I don't think this, that uh, a single person could not be an elder or a pastor. Um, otherwise, that would disqualify Paul, which would be a little bit awkward. Um, but just to say that for those who are married, this is what they should be like. Not someone with two wives, which there may have been many people in Crete who, who did have that, but no, faithful to his wife, a one-woman man, literally in the Greek. And when it says a man whose children believe, um, this word is pis- pistos in the Greek. And you actually, it's the same word that's being used later on when it says in verse 9 that he must hold firmly to the trustworthy, same word, trustworthy. The, the word is a ve- quite a flexible word. It can be used for someone who believes. It can also be used for someone who's faithful, loyal, trustworthy. And I think this is the best way to take this, whose children are faithful. Because actually, as we read in Timothy, this 1 Timothy, the same kind of job description, it's very, very similar But there the word that is used is clearly for that their children should be obedient or submissive. 
So I think that's important for us to recognize here because no one's in control of whether or not their children believe. We can bring them up in such a way that they're faithful and obedient. But faith in Jesus Christ is a gift from the Holy Spirit, not something a parent can maneuver. And their children should not be open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household. And you can see in our translation that 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 is kind of a new section. But I think it might be saying, actually, connecting to what I've just said, if he can't manage his own household, how can he manage the household of God? It's amazing that we're called the household of God, isn't it? Isn't that a beautiful thing for, for us, a way for us to see the church? An elder is not like a bouncer in a nightclub. Kind of, oh, are you allowed in here? No, you're not, get out. It's like a servant in God's household, making us feel at home, making sure we know the host. God is a welcoming God, and an elder should give off that also, that welcoming sense. Must be blameless again. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. When we get into positions of leadership, and this is true for elders, but it's true for all of us who have a position of leadership, it's tempting and it's possible to use that power for our own gain and to get frustrated with people when they don't do what I tell them to do. So an elder, a pastor who we appoint, they they should show in their life they're not like that. There's a gentleness about them. Rather, he must be hospitable, taking people into his home, making sure they feel part of the community. One who loves what is good. Again, this theme of doing good. He must exemplify that so that we can have a good model of that. Who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. A lot of these virtues... They're simple, aren't they? But they are hard. They are hard. Many of us may feel like, I don't, I'm still working on these things. Disciplined, self-controlled. An elder, through the just hard graft of life, they'll probably therefore be an older person. They're described as elders. (laughs) They've shown in their lives they have these qualities and we should be looking for them. So the first things we're seeing, all we could wrap up all those, is a leader of the church should be committed to doing good. Should be committed to goodness. But there's another thing in verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He must be committed to goodness but must also be committed to the truth. There's a kind of integrity to them. It's easy to be good if we're not going to refute anyone, isn't it? They're not committing themselves to goodness to be liked by others. They're committing themselves to goodness for the good of everyone else. And that will sometimes mean that they will have to hold firm on issues at their own cost, for the sake 
of the truth. They must therefore know the scriptures well. Understand what are the really important things that we must take an absolute stance on. And sometimes to know when there can be disagreements amongst the congregations on some more complex issues. It's really um, been striking for me as I've been thinking about this that there actually isn't any mention of gifting or giftedness. And I guess that's striking for me because I feel like in my upbringing and in my kind of experience of church, the, the role of a pastor and elder, which are interchangeable in here, it's, it's often been to me like, well, he's the guy on the platform. He's the guy on the platform. He should be a good communicator. Should be a gifted preacher. Just a likable guy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it, isn't it just really striking that's not here? And actually, the, his ministry of teaching is given, we've only, it's only got one verse here. Everything else is on his character. I wonder if sometimes we don't quite have that balance. You know? That'd be really important for us as we are appointing a new pastor to have that right, a right balance. It's the value of his character. I didn't know whether I should say this or not, but we were so blessed with Julian's ministry. You could see the fruit of it. And he's a great preacher. He's a great preacher. Very gifted preacher and a man who just exemplified these. And I was very inspired, even by the few months I had here as a younger man looking up to him. But we, we, we shouldn't have expectations that our next pastor will be just right up there as well in his preaching. He might be, he might be, and that would be, be wonderful. Uh, he might grow to be like that. But we should have a right balance. We shouldn't expect him to be like that. But we should really value, is he a good man? Is he a good man? We should be looking for that in leadership in general as well. We're so frustrated, aren't we, by so many leaders we see in the public life. So many moral failings. And surely it's also because we just don't value the importance of a leader being committed to doing good. And what we're seeing here is there's ways, lots of these virtues are things we can actually see. They're tangible things in the way they live in the home, the way they relate to others. So that's the kind of leader we need, someone who's committed to goodness and truth. Practical things, no fireworks there, but I think good for us to hear. I want to look at why. Why do we need them? Why do we need them? And that's what Paul starts to uh, speak about in verse 10 when he says, For, why do we need them? For, there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So we need leaders committed to goodness and truth not because there are many who are uneducated, many people who are simply in error, many people who haven't gone to seminary. 
many people who've just got the gospel wrong. No, what we're seeing here is the teaching that has come into Crete and is starting to upset whole households. The source of it, of their getting the truth wrong, is actually a moral issue. It's a moral issue. Paul charges them with being um, deceptive, rebellious, seeking their own gain. I want you to see here that the the truth is a moral issue. Truth is not just a, a matter of intellect. I think sometimes, especially if you're a student here, you could easily be get the impression at Cambridge that actually for you to understand the way the world works, um, especially on things like meaning and God and philosophy and these things, that really these things are just a head issue. But what we're seeing here actually is that to know the truth, especially when it comes to God, it's a, it's a, it's a moral issue. We've got skin in the game. You can see that when uh, I go back to politicians as an example of leaders in Parliament. It's so frustrating, isn't it, when you see the two opposing parties. You know exactly what's going to happen. He will say whatever disagrees with what the other guy has just said. We've lost trust in politicians because we see it so often that politicians, when they speak on a matter, their loyalty is not to what they actually think is right and true. Their loyalty is to their party. And for their own sake, so that they'll get in office. They've got skin in the game. It would, if they were to acknowledge the truth, it might not help their party. <laughs> I can think of that in my own life. Sometimes, I mean, this is silly, but maybe a housemate says, Oh, Ben, why have you left this there? I go, oh, I didn't leave it there. Someone else left it there. And then as we, the conversation goes on, I'm like, oh, actually, I did leave it there. And it's, it's, it's really kind of hard to go, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. It kind of hurts the pride, doesn't it? And it's very important for us to recognize, when we talk, to, talk about truth that comes from God, it, has, it confronts us. It confronts us. Maybe you're here today and you're still investigating the claims of Christianity, which is great. It's possible, and I see this a lot, and sometimes I think I actually give this impression to my friends when I talk about the faith, is that really it's, it's a matter of their working it out. If you could just look at some good historical evidence, if I could convince you of this philosophical truth, if you could see this trustworthiness about the Scriptures, then eventually you'll see that actually it's rational. I, I want you to see maybe, and I'd say the scriptures teach this a lot, is that if you're resisting the gospel, could it be because you don't want to bow the knee? Could it be something that you're resisting because you know it will come with a cost? I just want to put that to you. So truth is a moral issue. They're doing this for dishonest gain. Then verse uh, 13, Paul says, verse 13 of chapter 1, this saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply 
so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the, the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. I'd like to bring you back to something I said, which I think we struggle with today, is doubt. Doubt. I've often, I've, I've struggled with doubt in my life and sometimes still do. And I've found that actually Cambridge, is, it makes it worse. Just moving here recently. Because I'm surrounded by so many intelligent people who I really respect. And they disagree with me on so many issues. And that's pretty much most of my life is living amongst them. And it's, it, we'd, be, we'd be quite... Silly, really, to think that that doesn't affect us. And I've often thought of doubts. I don't know if you've ever uh, slept in a mosquito net. Maybe some of you have. And when a mosquito gets into the net, and it's dark, you're in, you're, you're in bed, you want to go to sleep. And then you just hear the buzzing at your ear. And you go... <laughs> and you miss it. And it comes back again. And your whole night's sleep could be disrupted by that mosquito. And I feel like doubts are like that. They're there, I try to get it away. It goes away briefly, comes back, bothers my sleep. What I've learnt with doubts and what I've learnt with mosquitoes is that first time it buzzes in the ear, you've got to bite the, bite the bullet. Is that a word? Is that a phrase? Put the, you've got to get up. You've got to put the light on. You've got to get your mosquito spray killer and just have a go at that mosquito and kill it. Make sure it's dead. See the evidence. Take it away. Go to sleep. That's what I've started to do with my doubts. And I hope this could help you is to just go, actually, let me really think straight. Truth is on my side. So if I, if I just think and look, well, what are the alternatives? And what do I know about Christ and the claims of the Christian faith? And often that helps me. But I've added another weapon to my arsenal, especially reading this passage here. One of the things that Paul kind of has a go at the Cretans for is that they've not just looked at the fruit of the teachings of these false teachers. They're bringing all these extra rules in. That's what it means by to the pure. All things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. So they're bringing all these extra rules in in order for us to be pure before God. But the gospel purifies us through the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ. We are pure. We know God. And what Paul is saying is this alternative false gospel, you should have been able to see it, Cretans, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're not doing, doers of good. They're upsetting whole households. So this new weapon that I've added to my arsenal is to go, actually, how could this gospel not be true if I see Eden Baptist Church? 
I see so many lives just transformed by the gospel. I see your goodness. I see the goodness in our leaders who teach us the truth week by week. They're holding firm to it, and their lives commend it. And that's a big help to me. And I think that's something Paul is saying here. Why do we need these kind of leaders who are committed to goodness and truth? One is it takes moral fiber to hold fast to the truth. But another thing is their goodness commends the truth. And again, I'd say to you, if you're investigating the claims of the faith, Christianity is not this abstract rational system for you to evaluate. But it's a house that we live in. It's God's house. We live in it. Test. Look at the way that the church lives. See that it is good. Let that encourage you. Let that bring a conviction of the truth. As we grow in our knowledge of God, we, we grow in a conviction that leads to goodness in our lives, and that commends the very truth that we've believed in. It's like this beautiful little circle of goodness, truth, then more goodness, and back to the truth again. There we grow in a conviction of that, and that's so rooted in God. God, it's not that God has goodness and has truth, God is goodness and truth. And as we come and learn his gospel, and as our elders And pastors, as they teach us, we see God through their teachings. We grow in a knowledge of the truth which leads us to goodness. I think Yates, and I'm I'm going to finish with this, Yates, part of what he's saying when the best lack all conviction is that lots of damage has been done by people who thought they knew what was right. And I think many people in Cambridge feel like actually to be convicted in the truth is dangerous. But what I'm trying to show you this evening, our truth, the truth, is really good. Let's commit ourselves to it. And if we do that, there'll be a humility that comes with it. Just like these elders, they're committed to goodness and truth. So I wanted to finish with another poet, a more... One, I think, is, captures what we've been saying today. This is G.K. Chesterton. This is what he said. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt. The divine reason. May God grant us and our leaders a humility about ourselves and a conviction in the truth of God that leads to godliness. Let me give you a bit of time to just reflect on these things, uh, and then I'll pray.
Father, for some of us, this message cuts close to the bone as we are involved in leadership or teaching. Give us a holy reverence for that task and the strength to complete it, committing ourselves to goodness and truth. Lord, we are so grateful for the elders you've provided for us. So evident as we read through these qualifications that you have granted us elders that are fulfilling this role. And we give you praise for that. We don't take it for granted. And we do pray, Lord, we continue to lift before you our aspiration to find a new senior pastor who will be committed to goodness and truth. And as we're at some quite important stages in that, Lord, please be with us. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who has struggled and is struggling with doubt. They believe, Lord, in your truth. They believe in who you are. They believe that Christ died for sinners and rose again. But they're prone to doubt it and they feel the effects upon that in our lives, Lord. For all of us, Lord, who feel that, grant us this day a conviction in the truth. And I pray, Lord, that that would bear its fruit in us. Pray that it would lead us to do good, to represent you in Cambridge, you, our loving Father, who is good and who is true. For your sake we ask. Amen.